Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. It's been a minute. It's been five months, which I did not realize until I logged into Squadcast for the first time in five months. Yeah, that's pretty wild because for four years before this, three and a half years before this, we were regularly, except for our summer breaks, pretty good about being weekly on the nose. So, hi, we're not dead. We both got new jobs. Life has been a little all over the place. Uh, and we're excited to be back. But I will say that this is a, a mini back. We're not 100% back with like weekly or semi-monthly episodes yet. Yes, we came back after five months to finally finish God, this goddamn book named Kai Kai, which is actually a really beautiful book. Um, but I think, as Maggie mentioned, we both got new jobs and the world is a little bit wild these days, I think, for everybody. You know, we just came off of a global pandemic that's not really over and everyone's kind of readjusting and trying to find their stride. And... Uh, I don't know. I personally just didn't feel like I had the capacity to like give this book what it deserved. I'm not even sure if we have the capacity today, but you know what? We're going to try. We're going to try our best. And then as Maggie, I think, kind of hinted at, we're going to go away for an undetermined period of time and we're going to come back. We're going to come back brighter and newer and and hopefully more sustainable and and bright and shiny. Yeah. Longtime listeners will know that Harmony and I started this podcast with a relatively set mission, I would say, about what we were up to. And then pretty quickly over the seasons realized that our mission and our definitions for life and how we were thinking like this were changing and evolving as the two of us were, which isn't a bad thing. That's normal and life. Um, but we've kind of reached a point where I think we both feel like while the core values of Rebel Girls Book Club are still the same, the lenses with which we want to talk about books are growing and rapidly expanding. So we need to do a little bit of like rebranding and mission clarification to be able to bring you all the best content that we possibly can and to keep this like exciting and interesting for the two of us. Um, so we're back here because we really wanted to finish this book. We both love Kai Kei a lot. This is the second time that I've read it and I loved it even more than the first. Um, but it's probably going to take us hopefully not another five months, but a little bit more time to figure out exactly who we are as a podcast now and what we're doing so that we can really bring you, I don't know, the strongest content that hopefully you all have come to know and love. Yeah, I think if you are a long term listener, I, you got the sense that we are very new at this. And this, this iteration of Rebel Girls Book Club has been like a super learning experience. And now we have tools and we know how much time it takes. We know a little bit more about podcasting. Um, and I think that we can use that to build something a little bit more intentional. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, I think I'm speaking for both of us where I don't necessarily feel like the last season was the worst thing on the planet, but it definitely wasn't up to the standards of uh, what we had done as in season three and especially season two, I think was really a place where we had hit our stride in terms of being able to talk about books in a way that felt really thoughtful and connected to the rest of the world. And that's what Harmony and I both really enjoy doing. So really all of this is to say that 
that's what we want to bring back to you now. Um, but our lives have both changed. When we started our GBC, I had just gotten out of grad school. Harmony was just going into grad school. And while school was a time suck in and of itself, um, it also does provide a little bit more flexibility sometimes in terms of timing than working a full-time job does, especially with a long commute, which both Harmony and I have. Um, so I think that that's just kind of the gist of things. It's like a mix of life and the fact that we have different things that we want to say and talk about now. So we're going to figure out how to do that in a way that still feels organic and natural to who we are and the values that we've built here. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. I don't know how long it will take, but I am excited. <laughs> um, are, are we good to move on from our little intro? Yes, Maggie is giving me a thumbs up. So I, I waited to share this on air, even though you all can't see. I wanted to show Maggie. I feel like it's fitting for our first time back in five months. Um, I've been working on a spell. because, As people may know, I'm a witch. I say it every episode. And um, what it is, is it's, I, I was gifted a beading kit last Christmas. And so I've just been making these like nine super long strands of beads. And then I kind of like, I, the, it's very messy looking. It's not as, it's not quite as clean as I, I would have liked it, but this is my new thing. I, I didn't used to do art when I was a kid because I lack dexterity um, <laughs> and I'm a messy person. And it really, it really broke my heart. But um, I've started taking up art as an adult because I think it's therapeutic. So I, I weaved these strands of these very colorful beads. It's like kind of a, a, a little overwhelming, I think. Um, and I've weaved them together to make a little basket. And I got my mother gifted me these little like bottles um, that are very cute. I have this little purple glass bottle here with a little cork stop. And um, I'm putting it inside of it. And I'm also here. Wait, Maggie, I'm so excited. This doesn't really relate to Kai Kei, but I think it relates to us being back. Kind of. I've I've ground some herbs that I've been carrying around with me. Um, I think it started off as a healing spell, and I'm just gonna like keep ground grinding until it's a much finer dust because I have a very tiny bottle to work with. And then I've got some like I've got this notepad of of words that I'm trying to put out into the universe. See, this is fitting for like our new podcast because we need to come up with missions, right? Um, and this doesn't have to do with our new podcast necessarily, but I'm trying I'm trying to like figure out where I want to take my life. You know, I'm, I'm almost 30. So we're trying to figure things out and I'm going to put it into this little bottle with the little dust. And then, um, I don't know, I might wear my beautiful uh, bead thing. It also, it has like, uh, it's got cool little big beads at the end, like stars and hearts and weird shapes and stuff that kind of look like stones. I don't think they are stones, but they're pretty. And um, I might wear it around my neck when I'm doing spellcraft, but when I'm not, I think I'm just going to hang it around my house. And that's my little spell, and I'm very excited about it. Mikey's the first person outside of my partner to ever see it. Yeah. I love how it's going straight from your partner to me to um, the rest of the world, considering the fact that this is going to, you know, go out to the universe. Uh, but I love it. It's very cute. And you did a really good job weaving the basket. Thank you very much. It's got some holes. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, Keke is kind of a magical book. And I think as I was reading the second half, I think in the first half, I came out with like, oh, it's okay to have power. And then 
I realized almost immediately after we released that episode that what I meant is it's okay to feel empowered um, because what I was, we had talked a little bit about manipulation in the first episode and then, yeah, I guess I was relating that to power and then we came off of that episode and I was like, I'm not sure if what I said, I just have a very distinct memory of being like, it's okay for people to have different power and different abilities and things like that. And I think that's true to an extent. But what I really liked about the first half was this feeling of empowerment that Kaikei was able to gain for herself. And in the second half, we really, and we started to see this in the first half too, we really see that empowerment um, being sustained and, and, and expanding also to the larger community of women. And the, the very end of the book is kind of like really solidifies that like, oh, we have built um, some foundation for women to feel empowered. And yeah, I don't know, I guess that kind of relates to my spell because as Maggie and I hinted at, we both started new things in our life. And I feel like as I talk about on this podcast ad nauseum, the world is really, really hard. And I think that relates to our book too, but we'll talk about that later. But the world, we live in a really like hard, kind of cruel world. And um, feeling empowered sometimes can be really difficult because the world doesn't want us to feel empowered because if we do, then we might have the capacity to actually change things. So this is my little effort to like set my intentions about what I want to feel empowered in. Yeah. I love that. That's very excellent. I'm impressed with the way that you were, in fact, able to spin that to be about the book. Uh, Really, we did the gymnastics there and it worked out. I think we stuck the landing. Um, But I do think that what you just said really speaks to me and what I found so intriguing about the second half of the book, especially reading it for the second time, is that Kakei as a character really goes on some harrowing adventures, shall we say, in the second half of the book. And I think that the ending of the book is relatively bittersweet. And the sweet only comes at the very, very end. Kaikei goes through a lot of grief. Um, She has to use her power, both politically and her magic, to make some really tough decisions that have um, some really difficult impacts on her life, both personally and again, as a queen. And I think that the interesting thing for me is that the first half of the book talks about that kind of individual empowerment. And then the way that Kaikei is able to start empowering others through her own empowerment with the women's council. But the second half of the book really explores, I think, context and the power of context, who has influence over what, um, and that for me, I think was really fascinating because I don't think the first time I read it, I noticed what a clear divide there was almost between the first half and the second half of the book in that sense. But the second half of the book complicates everything in terms of power, what the influence of Kaikei's power is, um, where it goes farther than she expected and where it fails earlier than she expected. And a lot of that is because of the fact that as much as she is as empowered as she can be and she's empowering other people, she still lives in a very patriarchal society. And so she's being pushed upon and navigating forces that um, still exist, even as she's still trying to subvert them. 
Yeah, I agree. I think in the first episode, I kind of missed... I don't remember because I tried listening to the first episode today and I just couldn't because it was too cringe. But I think I kind of missed the very basic reading of this book, which is structures outside of our control um, exist and they set up the structure of our lives and they feel impossible to fight, right? Because this is a book in which the world is faded. Or at least this is a world inside this book where everything is faded because there there is the existence of the gods and they have a set plan for every being. Um, or I guess they have a set plan for how like the world at large operates. And Kaikei from the very beginning in the get-go uh, is pushing up against that because the gods don't do her any favors because she she's god touched so she can't um she can't gain favor via prayer to the gods and also because her fate is set in stone and she desperately wants to change it and she wants to change the small uh world around her and at the the second half of the book, even though Kaike is living in this very patriarchal society, which is wrapped up with the gods because the humans think that the gods like patriarchy, we find out that the gods really don't care about gender divisions or sex divisions. But at the same time, they don't care because all they really care about is keeping themselves in power, making sure that they have control over the larger universe. Yeah, there's more I want to say on that, but I'm going to leave it there for now and we'll talk about it later. (laughs) Yeah, that scene to me was really pivotal. I knew that it was coming because I've read the book before, but reading it the second time felt like a gut punch for sure. Um, I think that this, yeah, the idea of structure and kind of where we exist within structure. I think that the book kind of leads you, though, to not really think about that quite so much in the first half because Kaikei does seem like she's subverting her fate and she does seem like she's having all of this impact and she does have impact. I think that the second half of the book is where it dives more into all of the structural issues that are keeping her from kind of using her full power and using the full extent of her of her wits basically to change the world as she wants to and it's interesting too because the structure comes at three different levels the structure comes at the family level where Kaikei loves her sons and she loves her husband and she loves um her husband's other wives they're a very strong family unit and she's blinded by that love especially for rama um and that like structure of the way her family works keeps her from making the change that she wants to see and then there's like the political and religious structure that harmony was talking about that's bigger where she has a relatively large amount of power but it's not unending power and it is very limited to the women's circles and the way that she can use her binds to manipulate the men around her which she does or tries to do in a very methodical and responsible way and then there's that third level with the gods and this idea of fate that they're all working within and the idea that the gods truly don't care or at least enough of them truly don't care about equality um, to make any changes is really such 
a gut punch. But I think that that like layer of structure and that layer layered nature of what limits Kaikei from being able to make all of the change she wants to see felt so true and real to me. I think especially like the family structural stuff, like it's really easy sometimes I think as individuals to look at the larger world and be like, yeah, like politically, I don't like the way things are going. These, there are like inherently inequitable systems that I see around me and I don't like that. It's a lot harder, I think, sometimes to look at people that you love who are in your life and push entirely against them all the time. And the way that your family life is structured, even if it's upholding inequity. Um, and that isn't to say that it's impossible, but I do think that Kaikei's like blind spot for her sons and her love for her husband is just very human and very understandable. And also she doesn't realize those blind spots until way late in the book, too late in the book really to change her fate. And I think that that's also very human because no matter how self-aware you are, and how much time you spend doing self-reflection and thinking about your place in the world, you're never ever going to be 100% self-aware. You're always going to have some blind spots. Um, And, you know, I feel like it's really relatable in the story of everyone's lives to like, from the outside, be able to look at somebody and be like, why are you doing this? Why are you upholding this? Why this? Why that? Um, But when you're in the narrative, it's so easy to get lost in all of that emotion. And it's the family structure that ultimately hurts Kaikei the most because she loses most of her family because of her decisions to try and make the world a better place. And that hurts her a lot. It causes her a lot of grief. That's really hard to read. Um, and she does it anyways, which is like such a brave decision. Thank you for bringing that up because I hadn't... I. I hadn't focused as much on the grief about familial structure and, and the grief about like having loved ones who, who uh, are harmful. And I think that not to get too into personal life, but I think that that's because I'm a Virgo moon. So, um, and also because of how I was raised, I'm extra critical of the people I love and have kind of always been like that. I've always been like, yeah, mom and dad, I love you guys a lot, but you are very human. <laughs> um, but that's a really good point. I think, too, not to jump the gun too much, but if we go straight to the epilogue, I think there is a realization that Kaikei has. And I don't know, I don't know, because I've, I'm just thinking about this now. I don't know if this is necessarily supported throughout the rest of the text, but I got the feeling, I get the feeling now as I have your added context that Kaikei was perhaps um, trying to control all of her loved ones, or at least control to an extent because she takes responsibility for all of their actions and choices. And the epilogue is very clear about the fact that even though this world exists somewhat faded, because the story of this myth that Kaikei is based on has um, some clear markers where Rama goes on to rid the world of evil. And like that's going to happen no matter what. As we're reading this story, that's stated over and over again. There are certain things like Kaikei is going to exile Rama and uh, Rama will go on and fight these wars and these battles but she, she at the end comes to realize that all of these people that she loves, her sons in particular, 
Um, and her brother, who chose to go to war with Kaikei's kingdom, um, because Rama, not Rama, Barada, Barada does not initially take the throne, who is Kaikei's uh, blood son. All of those people had their own choices to make, and these actions, even though parts of them were faded, were in part because of the toxic structures that the world they lived in had, the mortal world, primarily patriarchy. And all of these men are influenced by that patriarchy and fall to it at some point. But it's also, this is, I I texted Maggie today, this morning, and I was like, Kaike made me cry. Uh, And it did for different reasons than what Maggie just highlighted, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this book is also really, really hopeful. All of those men, although we don't see it with Rama, but it Kaikei suspects that Rama has the ability to change. And she uses a little myth about him helping out a stone woman to uh, kind of use that, use as evidence that he has the capability of change. But all of these men do, to a certain extent, change despite their toxic actions. Despite falling prey to patriarchy. And even though Kaikei does lose the majority of her relationships for a time, she also gains at least some of them back. And she doesn't lose everything. She still has people who love her and are loyal to her, primarily her servants, which is weird now that I'm saying that out loud, but primarily her servants throughout the entire thing. So I don't know. Maybe that's something to work with while we're talking about familial relationships. Well, I will say to start where you started, I do think that the idea of control is really is a thread that's played throughout the novel because there's two instances that take place before Kaikei realizes what she's doing with trying to take control and force her will upon others through her magic because the first instance is when she sees the way that the sages are trying to shape rama right and how her sphere of influence and her family's sphere of influence aren't the only things that influence rama because up to this point she's sort of under this idea that yeah i mean of course the boys are being taught by other people and like there's other other things going on but that their family as a unit is strong enough that they're the primary influences in their lives and Rama's life specifically because it's clear pretty early that he's going to take the throne, even though Kaikei's got some feelings about that. Right. Um, So like there's that interaction that they have with the sage at the temple where she realizes that Rama is outside of her control, but also that she's deeply uncomfortable with the fact that other people are trying to exert their influence over him and are succeeding. So there's that first little bit of like inkling of, oh, like this level of control over another person probably isn't great. And then the second level of that is when she realizes that Rama has been controlling everyone, that he has a very similar ability to her and has been controlling his brothers, controlling his father, controlling her to a certain extent. Although I think it's argued not quite as much as other people. She's not quite as influenced by his magic as others are, and being horrified by that. And then at the end, coming to the realization with both of those things that in many ways, Rama was doing what she always did. And 
by ignoring the responsibility she had, like by trying to do the right thing, by never influencing her children, she actually ignored a responsibility inadvertently to teach Rama how to handle that power with the same sort of moral compass that she had for herself with all of it. And then kind of coming at the set, at the end to this conclusion about responsibility and about control that's so complicated by the fact that the gods in this world are the ones that have the ultimate control over everything. So it's like this idea as well about free will versus what's fated versus exerting one's own influence where they can and like what are actually the ethics of doing that even when you're trying to do good. Um all feels very interesting and very complicated. And like the level of betrayal she has, which is very understandable when she realizes that Rama loves her, but doesn't totally trust her and doesn't trust her vision for the world because he's being influenced by all of these other people. I don't know. That part really spoke to me as a reader, I think, but also gave me a lot to chew on in this idea of, of structure and familial structure and power because as much as she sees all of these clues about Rama, as much as she's concerned about the fact that he's a god, she also makes excuses for him and how he treats Sita for a really long time. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm starting to go off on a little bit of a tangent there. But I, I do think that your reading of what was happening there has like layers of hints throughout the rest of the text. Yeah, not to go, not to support tangents, but that's what I do. So <laughs> real quickly, I do want to talk about, because I want to talk about Rama's birth mom, whose name I'm not sure how to pronounce. So I'm going to leave that to Maggie if they're competent enough, but <laughs> they're taking their text. Um Rama's birth mom is also not as influenced by Rama. And before we get any further, I kind of want to know if Maggie has any readings on why that is, because she isn't magic. So there's really no reason for her to be less influenced by her birth son. Yeah, you know, that's a really excellent question that I find interesting and... I don't know the answer to it. Part of me wonders if Rama never felt the need to influence her as much because he assumed that she would be obedient to him because she's his mom and he's going to be king. And like, of course, like that's just how things are supposed to go. I do also wonder if it's a layer of of love and how like when you love someone like I think that it's almost like two different spectrums like when KK really loves someone she's often blinded by that love to their flaws she sees them as the best person possible and that is such a beautiful form of love uh Kaushala I think is how you pronounce her name I'm so sorry if that's wrong it probably is wrong um but her form of love and that's true with how she interacts with everyone in her life is that she really sees their flaws and loves them through it and for it anyways. And I think that you see that a lot as well in how she deals with Kaikei herself, how she's furious with her for exiling Rama. But a lot of that fury comes from the fact that Kaikei didn't trust her enough to talk about this because she also believed that Rama wasn't ready to take the throne and thought that there was a different way to go about fixing the problem. Um, 
you see that even when their husband is dying and she brings Kaikei and Kaikei is like, oh, like, are you setting my execution date? And she's like, not everything is about you. Uh, and Kaikei even internally pushes back against that. But like, that was also such a pure form of love because like, she's still so angry and so upset, but knows that Kaikei loves their husband. Um, so I wonder if it's not necessarily about like, magical powers here so much as it's just about like strength of character the power that we all each have have in us individually um of like seeing the world differently like she would always be predisposed to not be super influenced because she is in many ways less influenced by others because she can really see the truth of them you know and not to say that it's like this magical level of perfect all the time because it's definitely not but she's just got different blind spots than kaikei does I'm very satisfied with that answer. Well, Maggie was talking. It was like, snap, snap, snap. <laughs> okay. Here, let me recalibrate. Back to family structure. Here we go. Um, no, I'm still stuck on magic. Okay. So we're going to go We're gonna go on that thought. So we were talking a little bit about Rama and his responsibility to... His responsibility... His, his, his ethics while using his powers. And I think it's implied in the text that he can't really always control them. That, like, because he is a god, unlike Kaikei, his powers sort of just kind of have a mind of their own sometimes. Like, he might want to influence someone, but he's not as aware of his influence as she is. And I guess I see this a little bit even though I'm not going to talk about it eloquently, I see it as a metaphor for toxic masculinity uh, because (laughs) men are born with an innate privilege and power almost entirely in the world, right? Because the majority of the world, I think, is patriarchal. There are probably some societies somewhere um, in which patriarchy is not the norm. But... In the majority of the world, I think we we have patriarchy at this time in this place. And I think that even when men are aware of that power and even when they're trying to do what's morally right, that masculinity that has been so deeply embedded in them, and I guess probably not just men, I'm sure like, I'm sure if any uh, non-binary or trans people who were socialized as men wants to like email us and tell us a little bit about their experiences they probably also relate to this a little bit i think that it's so deeply embedded in them that they can't help but perpetuate it and i guess that's kind of how all social structures work right uh I am a white person and there is a lot of times in which I'm like, oh, I have a lot of power because I am white or I don't necessarily even recognize that power. And I do all of these things and I have to outward, I have to like take a moment and think back and be like, oh, wait, I did this thing. Am I perpetuating this toxic structure that I have been born into and this privilege that I've been born into? So yeah, that was an eloquent, but I want to hear your thoughts on that, Maggie. That was actually exactly where I was going to go with this, because I think it even goes farther with the toxic masculinity reading than you're pushing on it in the sense that all of the implications that Rama can't control his power because he's a god come from Kaikei herself internally making excuses for him. He's just a child. He doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't have anyone to teach him. 
as if Kaikei herself wasn't just a child who didn't know what she was doing and didn't have anyone to teach her. Um, and still, to be fair, as we discussed in the first episode, through trial and error, um, wasn't able to create those moral restrictions for herself and figure out what she was up to. Um, so I think that that as well really supports this idea of toxic masculinity because she's also like, she, his mother is holding him to different standards than she held herself to. And I think to a certain extent that is because she's his mom. And again, like she's got this huge love blind spot for him and she doesn't believe that he's doing anything maliciously. Right. Even at the end, I think and, and his like political actions and like her fears for him being a ruler. Um, she doesn't like, she truly doesn't believe any, any of it's malicious. Like it needs to be stopped anyways. And I think that really ties in as well to what you're talking about with like toxic masculinity. And like when you're perpetuating harm because you're so deeply embedded in the system or like whiteness and being so deeply embedded in the system that sometimes it's hard enough to even, it's hard to even pull out enough to realize the places that you're perpetuating systems and harm. Um, but I think that it is really interesting as well because it gives us a lens as well to see Kaikei is not being perfect too because she is a very morally upright ca- character and she does push really hard for life to be better for others. And as hard as she is on herself at the end where she thinks about the fact that her legacy will be destroying the kingdom that she was born and being the reason that her twin brother was murdered on the flip side of it, the rest of her legacy, which you see as she's traveling throughout the village is the woman that she helped (laughs) the way that she was able to start creating systemic societal change and how women treated themselves and treated themselves within the familial structures. Like that's the other half of her legacy. Um, But she's still imperfect, you know? And I think that, accepting that fault for others in some ways for a long time gives her a lot of leave to not necessarily accept her own fault. So seeing her go through that system as well and the way that she allows Rama and her other children to perpetuate masculinity because she just kind of doesn't want to point it out or push up against them or, or doesn't really notice or think about it in the same way because she's their mother. Um, was really fascinating to me. So to me, at the very least, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Thank you. So I guess I hadn't, I didn't directly relate your, your, your spiel on blind spots for the people we love um, to the fact that many of us who love men end up having blind spots towards men. And this brings up, some ideas that I've been working with recently that I want to talk through with you, but that might potentially be problematic in nature. So listeners, please be forgiving. I'm just working through them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess I love some men. There are some men that I love um, and I make a lot of excuses for them, I think, even though I think that they're all good people. And I think part of that comes from this idea that I have that it must be harder for men to recognize their power and privilege and then to break away from patriarchy than it is for people who are not socially conditioned as men or I guess people who probably aren't just like cis men 
perhaps. Um, because I think if you have a gender discovery, maybe you're, you're doing some of that work anyway, because you're, you're thinking about the ways in which masculinity has been assigned to you. And that's a concept that I've been working with quite a lot now. And I think that the rest of the world also kind of does. I think that we all sort of make excuses for men. And part of that, oh, I'm going to get canceled. Um, (laughs) Part of that idea really rests with some of, I've been working through this idea for a long time. Um, There, some years ago, some years ago, we started talking about the problems that white women have and the ways that they weaponize whiteness. And by we, I mean like culture at large and, and in a way that I became aware of. But I think that we're really focusing on now with things like the Karen movement. And I think that's very appropriate. But sometimes I'll be in social interactions where I notice that like that hatred of white women ends up <laughs> overshadowing um, some of the bullshit that like men in my life will do. Like, we will be right there and there will be something like hatred towards you because you're a woman and you should know better. And then also like, but let's lift the men up because they are not as problematic as they could be. And I think that that is pretty common, right? We see this idea of like a a guy parenting a child and um, we give him all the applause because he deems to parent his child. Um, whereas like women are always being judged for how they parent their children, just as a, a pretty big universal example that I think a lot of people are familiar with. And so part of, yeah, part of that, part of me processing that has been like looking at the men in my life, watching them all learn and grow, um, and watching how hard all of the men that I love really try to be good people, but then also watching, because I'm, I feel aware of all of their bullshit areas. And so watching those bullshit areas and being like, well, why can't you get past that? And then coming to the conclusion that like, oh, it must be harder for you because for me, right, I was born as a woman and had all of the language of feminism really thrown at me by my mom, not all the language, but a lot of the language of second wave feminism, so problematic feminism at least, thrown at me from a very young age because my mother had to do some deconstructing because she was so directly harmed in these very big ways by patriarchal society. And I got to see that all from a very young age. I got to see the ways in which patriarchy played out. And I was watching my mom go through that. And so for me, questioning patriarchy has always been very second nature. But for all of my bullshit men who really love women and um, try to do right by them, I think, otherwise, I don't think that they'd be in my life. Um, There are still these spots where I'm like, oh, this seems like such a basic thing that you should be able to let go of. But they can't because it's so directly in contrast to their ability to feel empowered because the definition of being a man is all about having power over something. I think that I hear you. I feel like the difficult thing about 
using a word and now I'm like really going to nitpick what you just said. So I'm so sorry. But I think that the, the difficult part about using a word like harder is that it comes in direct comparison to like suffering, I think at the very least. And I don't really think that that's what you mean so much as it's just that like the work of unpacking stuff is some, to me, it's like the higher you are in societal hierarchy, the farther you have to dig to get at the, to the bottom of the pile of shit that is systemic inequality and like understanding where you play into that and how you deconstruct that. And sometimes that digging can feel like a lot of work and can feel really difficult. Um, And then knowing as you and I have both talked about that, like the difficulty of doing that work like pales in comparison or or can't really be compared in any way to the difficulty of suffering through being the person who receives grief and suffering and trauma because of those systemic equality, like inequalities, like those two things are separate. Um, And to me, that's what I, that's like what I was thinking. Like, I think that the reason, (laughs) I know you were joking about being canceled, but like, I think that like the reason that you would be with a take like that is that it sounds like when you say something's harder, that like you're directly comparing it to the experience of like actually living through that systemic inequality. Whereas in reality, it's just kind of like for a lot of people, I think especially as white people who have, um, a significant amount of white men in our lives. It's like, you look up and it's like, wow, you just have that much farther down to dig than I do, you know, in order to unpack all of this stuff. Um, and I think too, you know, tying it back into feminism, part of the reason that I, as a human being have felt equipped to do the work that I have done and thinking about my place in like systemic inequality and structural inequality and the places where I perpetuate that, not to say that I've done a perfect job or anything, but like I do think about it often is because of my close female friendships and the safety and intimacy and vulnerability that I have in those friendships and the ability that I have to be able to fail publicly to them and not be um, thought of as being a horrible person. And I do think that it's more difficult in society for men to create relationships like that, especially relationships that are outside of intimate romantic partners, which can be a place for that work to happen, but probably definitely should not be the only place for that work to happen, especially when we're talking about patriarchy um, as like a little bit separated out from other places of intersectionality for the sake of this conversation. Um, That like, I think that sometimes there can be less structure and less support to like do that digging and figure things out, you know? Um, And I think that this is hard because like even having this conversation I worry about makes it sound like I'm making excuses for men so much as it just feels kind of like the patriarchy harms everyone. And sometimes it keeps us and harms us from even doing the work because it's a system that wants itself to stay in power and wants itself to be supported. So it's not going to give tools to the people who are supposed to be benefiting from it to like think differently about how the way the world can be structured. I hope any of that made sense. In my mind, I felt like I was having a really big brain moment, but it's possible that that was just like verbal spew. (laughs) 
that made a lot of sense to me. And thank you, Maggie, and thank you, listeners, for um, giving me enough grace to kind of talk through these things. The only thing, and I, you kind of, you talked about it at the end anyway. And Maggie is right. Obviously, I don't want to equate the suffering of people who are marginalized by systems and structures to the suffering of people who are more privileged and have power within those systems and structures. But I think when we're talking about sexism in particular, it is hard for me. It is hard for me to quantify suffering because everyone feels it differently. And because men, so as Maggie just talked about in terms of like relationships and also self-expression, like men so very obviously suffer from patriarchy, like so much. And we see it again in this text. We see it with Barada, uh, who chose to sort of disown his mom for a second and ended up killing his uncle who he had, or not killing, but being responsible for the death of his uncle in part because he chose to like uphold Rama's power structure and Rama's power structure happened to be deeply steeped in patriarchy, even though it was also about ridding the evil of the world. Which leads me to another thing that I want to talk about, but I'm going to wait because I want to see if you have any response to that. I think the only response to that I have is that I think that you're right. And part of the reason that I'm really trying to weigh my words out here is that it's really difficult to figure out how to talk about the fact that like, it's hard to quantify suffering. And it's easy at a high level to say that the systems that hurt the most marginalized people also harm the people who are in power and who are ostensibly gaining from those systems. Um, Because I think that it's really easy to become, it becomes like a tallying aspect of like, who is suffering the most and why and like, who is benefiting the most and why. Um, And it's hard to figure out the right balance to be like, you are suffering from this and benefiting benefiting from it at the same time. Whereas the people who are being harmed by the system are probably suffering more than they're benefiting. And then if you put sexism back into the like rest of the picture of um, intersectionality of identity, then things get even more complicated in terms of like what that system looks like of harm and benefit. Um, but yeah, so it's, and it, 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 so it's just like, it's, I just find it really difficult to talk about. Like, I agree with you and I don't know where to move forward with that. And I think that part of the reason I agree with you and don't know where to move forward with that is because of my own whiteness and my own, um, evolving understanding of how my own whiteness has created and perpetuated harm in the lives of others, you know, uh, because of the system of white supremacy. Um, and I think that like, because I'm still grappling with that, it makes it harder sometimes to talk about other aspects of my identity where things potentially theoretically feel a little bit more clear cut. I understand all of that. So anyway, again, listeners, please don't hold me to this. These are just thoughts I'm grappling with. But also, if you have thoughts, please do email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Again, that's rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Because I do want to learn more about this conversation. And 
yeah, if it's problematic, please let me know. But also, please do so with gentleness because, again, this isn't something I'm sold on. These are just thoughts that I'm having. And this is my place, as I hope it is for some of you, or it helps contribute to your place for grappling with difficult ideas. So maybe this is something we'll talk more about in future episodes when we come back. But I want to detour for a second. What were we talking about? (laughs) It had to do, I think, with Rama. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in the book, (laughs) Rama and Ravana. Ravana is apparently this great big evil that Rama is trying to fight. And the book doesn't really address this, but I felt as I was reading it that it is possible that Ravana is not actually evil. And it really puts into uh, question everything that the gods deem good or evil, because the reason that they are against Ravana is because he makes cool inventions like the flying machine that I think we saw somewhere. I don't know if it was in the first or second half. I think it might have been the second half, actually. But there's a flying machine. Like, Ravana makes cool inventions, and he's not down with the gods because the gods are not down with his species. And the gods say that that's evil, and it's Rama's job to rid the world of all evil. And I don't know. I think we should talk about that because I don't know. (laughs) Well, I think to me, it totally ties into everything we just talked about, which is that at the very base of it, all of the systems with which we live are like structured by made up rules (laughs) that have become more real because they've been around for centuries and have created very, um, conditioned responses in people and individuals societally. They've created laws and um, practices that are inherently unethical. Um, But like at the very core of them, they're all made up things that like we've just kind of bought wholesale talking in the most general sense about the world. And like, I think that's totally the thing with the gods, right? Like they're just kind of making these very arbitrary decisions and some of them seem kind of justified. You know, we see Kaikei fight so many of these asanas that do seem like they're evil, or at the very least are trying to directly harm her and her children in the moment when she's facing them down. Um, but then we do see Ravana and he's just kind of vibing. <laughs> like every time we see him, he's a good friend to Kaikei. Um, they are able to create some sort of trust with each other. And like, you're right. His whole thing is just that he's inventing things. So I think to me, his character is really set to make you question the will of the gods in this sense. And sort of this idea that so many things are arbitrary or put into place because they keep the people who are in power in power. But it also does make me question Rama even more. And even Kaikei's conclusion about him at the end that he might be better when he left than, uh, or when he comes back than he was when he left. But at the same time, because of Ravana, you know, he's on his, he's on this quest to like rid the world of evil and like kill all of the Asanas wholesale. And Ravana just stays in the back of my head niggling like, well, is he actually doing this with any sort of thought about what good and evil 
is and who and like whether these beings deserve to die based on their individual actions or is he just going around wholesale doing it because that's what it means to rid evil of the world and we don't really have an answer to that at the end um but that is so much of what forms his opinion about women in the state of society to begin with that I think to me, that's what makes it feel like a bittersweet, hopeful ending because Kai sees hope for Rama and what could happen next. And I want to believe in that hope so bad, but I'm left with just enough questions that it's like, will things actually be better? Or is this kind of what Kai has to tell herself in order to sleep at night? And I don't blame her if that's the case, but I don't know. Okay, I am satisfied with that. I want to move on to the reason why this book made me cry so hard. Um, <laughs> I I feel like I didn't, I don't know. We all were sort of grieving during the pandemic, I think. And I don't know, just like coming out of that isolation, going back to work in a larger capacity, um, now working in a job in which I get to see inequity very clearly because I work with a lot of really vulnerable people because that is just a part of the work that I do, right? I've felt so much grief recently, even though no one close to me has died. I I don't know. I guess just about the world at large. Like we have Donald, we live in the States. We have Donald Trump out of office, but I came back from Europe last summer and, uh, Roe versus Wade had been overturned and I live in a state in which that isn't a problem right now for for me directly but like I still feel so much grief about it and this book to me felt very much like as all books do because this is who I am as a person right like kind of a prescription for how to operate with this grief because towards the very end before our epilogue as Maggie, I think, mentioned before, Kaikei is overwrought with grief because she realizes that no matter what she does, certain things are still going to happen. And that in trying to stop them from happening, she has severed all of these really important relationships to her. And I just, oh, I just felt it so hard because I I feel like I try so hard. <laughs> to like do something positive in the world, but there's these big forces and I'm only one person with only so much capacity and the world is still going to be awful no matter what, right? But we come out of the book understanding that Kaikei did make real change in matters that the gods just like don't even really care about. Like they're not paying attention to, but they are still super important. She has changed her kingdom to be less patriarchal, essentially. She's empowered women throughout her kingdom. And even though she temporarily lost her birth son, her blood son, he came back with a understanding that like the things that she was working for and fighting for mattered all along and had a real impact on people, like peace. And I don't know, that felt that felt really hopeful because I think, I don't know if you relate to this, I think a lot of my life right now has been like, I feel so powerless, I'm struggling so much under the system, even though I don't struggle as much as other people, even though I'm not struggling as much as I have in the past, I still feel this struggle. And 
I don't know how to use what capacity and agency I have to make the world a better place. And that was kind of like a, it was like a start small and keep trying sort of moment, I guess. I think to me, the joy in that is that change can wear many faces. And even when you are the catalyst of that change, sometimes you aren't always the person in the best position to see what the positive impact of it has been. Sometimes you're also not the person to see what the negative impact has been, right? Like that doesn't necessarily have to be just a good thing. But I think that that is the like hopeful message I saw in Kaikei is that she did make so much change and she did so much good. And the small things she did and the individuals she touched built it out into systemic change. So I think that for me, that's the thing that I find the most empowering about this book is that the individual lives that you touch by yourself might not be that many. Um, But especially when you're aligned with people in your life who share similar values, um, you know, slowly but surely that web grows larger and larger of the change and impact you can make. Because at the end of the day, society is made of people, right? Like, because it's this kind of made up thing that we've all agreed to wholesale, we also have the power to change everyone's minds, even if it goes slowly. And it's better to change three or four minds, or even if you don't change them, make three or four people think differently about the world than they did before they met you, than to have that number be zero. Because then those three or four people might go out and do the same to three or four people, and it can kind of just go out from there, you know? Because I think that that's also the thing about the end of Kaikei, is that not every single person she sees living a changed life came to the Women's Council or came in contact with her at all. It was people who came to the Women's Council and then was able to bring that to their friends and family who brought it to their friends and family, you know? Um, so I think it's both a sense of the, the idea of wanting to change and save the world entirely wholesale yourself is probably a bad one <laughs> because then that just puts you and your ideologies in the place of power in place of whatever is already pre-existing. Um, but being able to make small change and let it be kind of crowdfunded like that, um, and like having impact in that way, like Kaikei can't take entire credit for the change that she's seen, but she knows that she was a part of it. And that's really empowering. And that's a lot of what I took from that end of the novel. Yes, I agree. I agree with what you said. It's all about us all working together. We're all in this together. I think, so we're about to hit an hour. I think that I'm mostly wrapped up with Kai Kei. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with this book? If, if you couldn't tell listeners, we both loved it. So highly recommend. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Uh, it is a great retelling. And it's just, it's nice. It's a, oh, I love Magical Woman. I just love it. All right. Normally at this point, I would start asking you follow-up questions that don't have as much to do with the book, but we don't really know when we're coming back or what we're up to. Um, We will keep you updated, though, on what's happening with all of that. So, Harmony, is there anything that you would like to leave the people with before we sign off? Find co-creators and your co-creators don't have to have the exact same sets of ideas or values as you do right they can just have 
some sort of similar ideas and values and be willing to take action on them? I agree. I agree. All right, my friends, we will be back soon with a new and improved Rebel Girls Book Club. Thanks for your patience on finishing this book. Uh, (laughs) We definitely didn't intend for it to take five months to happen. And we will talk to you all soon. Goodbye. Bye.